this week on Dig Me Out. with your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, the you in that sentence is not you, but the listener. Did you know that? What? I'm saying it's not you. I, I'm not talking to you as a person. I'm talking to oh. you as in the listener, as they oh. can help us make the next episode happen. You gotcha. can't do anything to make us help next episode happen other than show up with your knowledge. I do my part. You do your part. Small part. You do all you the do it. Left. Yeah. 90-10. 85-15. Maybe. <laughs> uh and if you were joining us at, at if you joined us at Patreon, we now have a Discord channel, which is like a message board, but not actually. Somebody called it uh, Discord me out. I thought it was clever. Nice. It's where we like to chat about things. We chat about uh, various new albums that are released and new music when we when we send out our box newsletter each week. But also we talk talk about like. Hey, uh, what music docs are coming out, or what's uh, what's everybody? Uh, what kind of gear do you listen to, or or, or listen on? Um, or yeah, uh, helping uh, helping uh, make some recommendations on headphones and tube amps. Yeah, and stuff like audio nerd do. stuff, like Cubas <laughs> or Quobas. What is that? How do you say it? Uh, I say Cubas. Cubas. All right, but I don't know. I know. What do you know? Nothing. That's all right. No, you know a lot. You know more than I do about that stuff. So if anybody needs any recommendations on uh, very expensive headphones, talk to Jay because he knows he's tried them all out. <laughs> but Jay, the reason why we're here is because of Patreon. It's one of our patrons is back. Previously joined us for episodes sh- such as the Nixons, FOMA, who just put out a new EP. This spring or summer, I don't, I don't know. I have no concept of what time it is right now. It was it might have been two weeks ago? It might have been three months ago. Uh, but it was, it was good. It was in our box newsletter. We reviewed it, and then that was two years ago. Last year, it was "Forever Equals a Day" by Fighting Gravity, which was probably one of the more obscure albums or or lesser known that we've reviewed. Um, kind of one of those regional artist deals that like the, like sort of like Michael Stanley in Cleveland <laughs> or Donny Iris in Pittsburgh. That's your good too. Yeah. If, if for people who are, you know, the big Donny Iris following that everybody's aware of. Well, actually you're, you wouldn't be cause he was a regional artist. Alea. That was the single. I digress. Joining us once again from the hot, hot South. <laughs> Tara McCook. Welcome back Tara. Thank you. How are y'all doing? All things considered. All, th- <laughs> all things considered. Okay. I think okay. that's about all we can ask for these days, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I take pride in trying to find the most obscure and interesting things I possibly can for you all. So I think I'm kind of keeping a theme going, but oh, I don't want to. Oh, you up. are. You are getting <laughs> it out of the ballpark. Yes. So why don't you tell everyone what album you picked for this episode and why you picked it? Okay, sure. Um, so I picked the 1997 album Desert Rain by the band Indian Ocean. So to kind of backtrack a little bit, this time last year I was just leaving Chennai, India for one of my trips over to see my colleagues my firm has an office there and i spend a week or so every two years there kind of training them up and my husband is also indian his father emigrated to the states so we've spent a lot of time you know i've spent a lot of time over my life 
being exposed to Indian culture more than you would probably expect a white girl from Mobile, Alabama to ever have been. So when it came time for my 12 month pick, I wanted to pick something that was kind of outside the, you know, the usual norm of where my mind usually goes. And Indian Ocean is a really fascinating band kind of in Indian popular music history, along with just really sounding great. And it's a band that I'm not like a hyper big fan of. It's not music that, you know, kind of evokes particular emotional responses. So I don't have like cool stories from concerts or anything, but I think it's interesting to discuss and kind of get into. So I think there's a lot to think about sociologically and kind of music history as well as the music itself. And what do you know uh, history-wise uh, about the band? History of the band. So the Wikipedia, I'm pretty sure someone affiliated with the band wrote the Wikipedia, and it's written in kind of a formal, like there's a lot left out of the Wikipedia, but I can do kind of a high level. Yes. If you want. Okay. So Indian Ocean is considered in India to be kind of the founders of what they call rock fusion, which is another reason why they're interesting because we usually think of fusion from the American, British, white people side of the equation. Indian Ocean is a fusion of rock and traditional Indian music kind of with Indian music as the start and rock as the addition instead of it being the other way around. So they were founded in the late 80s, early 90s, and the core of their band was these four guys, Susmeet Sen, Ashim Chakravarti, Rahul Ram, and Amit Kilam. That's their main lineup of band. And they were some of the first to fuse popular music in a non-Bollywood context, because that's kind of the split and what makes them stand out, is that there'd been a lot of fusion before, obviously, because India has that connection to Britain through hundreds of years of colonization. But once that was broken, that that connection to Britain still remained through popular culture. You know, like my father-in-law was a massive, huge Beatles fan well before he got to the States. He's got all these cool old, you know, post-Raj Beatles records that are amazing. Like it's, you know, different cuts, different versions. So, but most of the fusion came and still does come through Bollywood. That's a lot of popular music is driven by film. And they were some of the first to just be a band that did rock music, you know, and kind of made that fusion. So that's kind of why I think they're so fascinating. Like you talk about a corner shop or somebody like them, corner shops, British, like, you know, Ginger Singh grew up in England. They are a British band with, you know, the, the Indian culture and they're in, you know, they are heavily informed by Indian culture, but they are a British band. These guys are basically informed as Indian people living in India with rock influence. Did that about cover it? Yes. And this particular release is actually a live recording from what I read was an accident. Uh, They didn't intend to release this. Yeah. I did not know that story. I'm interested now. Um, they were playing at a place called the Mandi House or Mandy House in New Delhi in 1997. Mm-hmm. And they were waiting to get on stage. I guess there was a delay for quite a while. And they were with um, a guy named Vikram Mishra, who mm-hmm. had a dat. And mm-hmm. they said, hey, uh, since we're waiting here... Uh, would you mind recording the show just to just get a recording of it? Wasn't any intention of like doing anything with it. And um, they recorded it and I guess they took it to their, I, they were on a label for um, I think the first record. Mm-hmm. Know, we'll check that, but nobody wanted to put it out. So they're like, and this guy, Naresh Bhatia, I don't know how I'm sorry. I'm going to. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to put it out. So he formed a a record label called independent records or independent music and put out it, put it out. And that's, it was religiously originally released just in new Delhi in 1997. And then it was re-released in 2002 as the band was getting more popular. It's only been released in India on CD and cassette. 
Nice. So if you're looking for this in the States, probably going to be hard to come by. Um, and it's not streaming on U.S. Spotify. But there is other music by the band on U.S. Spotify. Including yeah, like some best ofs and stuff. Yeah, uh, you can get Desert Rain on Apple Music. But I was not able to find much of them streaming anywhere else. Like from the 90s. There's a lot of their 2000s stuff out there streaming. Yes. But from the 90s. And it's interesting that that's how it came out, too, because, you know, they started coming like I'm sure there's tons of interesting stuff to go down the route of business because they started getting popular and started getting records right around the time India's economy liberalized. And like when my father in law was a young adult, you weren't allowed to leave the country with cash like you couldn't bring rupees outside of India. He's got great stories about smuggling cash out through his suitcase and business like that. It was intense. So in the early 90s, they started liberalizing their economy and opening up to, you know, different kinds of economic trade. So that's like like the the backstory of that is super interesting. Huh. Huh. Did not know that. Yeah, it's it's modern Indian history, not to get too far off the page, is wild. And I highly recommend people read like Indian accounts of it because the non-Victor's history accounts are where the good stuff is. So, Jay, were you familiar with Indian Ocean before before we did this episode? I was not. No. no. Have you listened to any um, Indian music? Or Indian influenced, other than like Corner Shop when we reviewed that. Not that I know. I mean, I've heard Indian music, but no, I don't. I can't think of any artists that pop off the top of my head. That gotcha. Considered Indian that I listen to. The only so there is a term on on Discogs that's connected. So if you go to this album, it describes it. The style, the genre is jazz, folk, world, and country, and the <laughs> style is fusion Hindustani. And when you click on Hindustani, it describes it as a classical music of North Indian, North India. Um, and it lists the most collected Hindustani music, and most of those are Ravi Shankar records. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking, I, of the six that are, or seven that are listed, I own three of those records. Of the, so Ravi Shankar is basically my only, like, really solid knowledge of any sort of Indian music, I've heard other things just from sampling on uh, Spotify. Because I think I bugged you a couple years ago about <laughs> looking for some music. But I've, I've, yeah. picked up, I've picked up randomly over the years when I see like a, a Ravi Shankar used album at like, you know, Half Price Books. I'll be like, oh, I'll grab that. Usually with no idea what that particular record's going to sound like. And then I did pick up like a... Um, Oh, what was it? It was like a a Santana and um, it was a weird record from like the 70s of Santana and like John McLaughlin, the guitar player. Oh, my dad loves that record and I completely spaced on its name. My father is a huge Mahavishnu Orchestra, John McLaughlin guy too. So, yeah. No, and Mahavishnu Orchestra is kind of like like when I was listening to Indian Ocean, it was sort of like, okay, these are natural counterparts, you know, because John McLaughlin got the Indian influence as sort of his secondary layering over jazz rock. And these guys got jazz rock as their secondary influence layering over traditional Indian classical music. So, yeah, it, like that's a really good kind of counterpart to really get into that sound. It's called Love, Devotion, and Surrender. Yeah. Um, and they cover like A Love Supreme by um, Coltrane. Yep. On that. My Along dad with- had that in our car when I was going back and forth to middle school a lot. And I spent a lot of time with Mahavishnu Orchestra records in middle school and high school, which is also not normal for Mobile, Alabama, but whatever. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. That would that would definitely um Well then the, the other records that I'm aware of are the ones the Shakti records. Uh, mm-hmm. ha- a handful of beauty and natural elements. Those are a couple other ones mm-hmm. that I've like. You just see these. Sometimes it's like just seeing the album cover. You're like, I don't know what this is, but it has a cool album cover. So you know, it's only like four bucks. I'm gonna pick it up and see what it sounds like. Because I'll just peruse like you know, a lot of record stores don't have fully developed 
non-U.S. sections. It's just all lumped together under world music. So you just kind of look through there and like, is there anything interesting? Like, I'll try to find like a reggae record that I might be interested in or, or, or sometimes, you know, random like salsa or, you know, just yeah. stuff, random stuff. And there's always like a John McLaughlin record in there. I'm like, ah, all right, well, I'll, th- I'll take a chance with a f- for a few dollars on this. When you were still allowed to go to restaurants, uh, one of the best ways I've found to kind of broaden my knowledge of Indian music is sit near, in at least the ones I've been to, there's usually a TV with it, like a YouTube TV or like a fire stick or whatever, and they're streaming a YouTube channel of like Indian popular music. Or oh, like yeah. That's, and I've found so many amazing one-off songs just hit, hitting that Shazam when I hear something I like and then going and downloading it. Yeah, there's a a, a Briani place, um, oh, which so it's really really good. It's right by our house. We or, we can only order it like every couple months because it's so spicy. Mm-hmm. That that particular region is particularly spicy food, uh, but it's delicious. Yeah. But I go in and pick it up. I, the last time we ordered, I had it delivered because obviously because stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But I used to go in and and wait and just stare at the TV. Like I have no idea what's going on, but just watch these like crazy videos. And, and this, the, you know, it's, that is much more in the pop vein. Like you can hear like yep. pop drum loops and that, you know, the vocals are much more processed in, in uh, a pops way. So it's really interesting. But then like, if you go to, I have the same restaurant experience. If you go to like an older restaurant, that they're not playing the pop music they're playing like yeah the classics so let's get into this record desert rain by indian ocean jay tell me one thing you liked about desert rain i really like the the approach to guitar um I, i i think he's playing like a nylon acoustic maybe um and doing a lot of finger style mm-hmm. and you get this at times you know for me to my ears i hear like almost spanish or classical um but then also riffs in, in a sense um really kind of cover a wide range of you know being able to play you know super fast lines and then they go into like these melodies um that are kind of like the thematic hooks of the song um and then kind of do some jazzy chord elements um i just i found the approach to guitar to be very um different i mean obviously very um i guess in a classical way trained um so super competent you know great technique but just the um I guess the just how fluid it is, you know, and it's not like I wouldn't say necessarily jazz in that I, jazz feels a little bit more f- freeform, but it it there's so much movement to it, and um, it's it's hard to believe like you could play this stuff the same way twice. So it also makes me wonder like how much of this is improvisation, um, and how much of it is, you know. Uh, pretty much set this way and he plays it the same way every time because it's just so intricate and so much so many notes um so much movement to it so i was just uh, really focused a lot on the on the guitars um and trying to figure out um you know and, and understand it from that aspect i also thought the um the songs that had more of a pro- almost like a progressive structure to them where they would i think from the ruins is a good example where Kind of starts off sparse, um, melancholy ecstasies like this too, and then there'll be a middle section that might be a little bit more vocal heavy. Like they'll bring in vocals, almost like a another instrument, um, which I thought was really cool. And then they kind of build up. They'll bring in like a full drum kit, um, and they kind of play the song out that way. I thought those structures were um, they kind of related. From like almost a progressive rock kind of place for me, um, which I thought was pretty cool, um, and, and just the way they use vocals on the record, it's 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 interesting because 
uh, one of the songs, the vocals come in and they almost sound like they're doing a drum solo, but with vocals and hand claps. <laughs> um, and then there's another song where um, there's just this great baritone like lead vocal, right? Which a lot of the songs don't have what I would call lead vocal. They just either either instrumentals that have a vocal section or instrumentals. <laughs> So it just made me also compelled by, you know, all these guys can really sing, but they're choosing not to all the time. Like they're choosing these other structures, which are really different and, and interesting. So those are the three things that kind of stood out to me as I went through and, and dug into this record. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I From the Ruins was one that really stuck out to me as well, just because it had, you could hear that song and then hear the influence a band or a sound like this has on musicians like uh like danny carey from tool like yeah. you can hear him incorporating the rhythms that are not found in most rock, you know heavy rock music but him being a much more expansive drummer in terms of his palette can totally hear him incorporating these sounds and i think just overall because i had a little more exposure to this i was it wasn't as like i wasn't as confused as maybe the first time i listened to a band that it doesn't work in this you know where my mind is like thinking in terms of format of verses and choruses and and those sorts of things where here it's it's a much more ebb and flow rather than a traditional i don't know if you want to say like you know, Americanized pop format. What works best for me is simply the, that they play so well together and it, everything locks together in a way, like you mentioned about improvisation versus like formal structure. To me, I get the sense that they have melodic riffs that they return to, but there is a lot of improvising and, and sort of, going off on individual tangents at times especially the guitar player i don't i don't know he probably is hitting some of that stuff repetitively but i got a much more of a jazz sense in just in terms of the of the flow than a structured you know this is what we're doing every time Oh, my God. 
Tara, do you know, based on your knowledge of the band, is this more freeform or is this more structured as this as far as the songs go? Yeah, it's definitely these are songs, but there are definitely like improv breaks in the middle. It's like they were structured to kind of have that place where when you perform them, you can wander, you know, kind of like, you know, almost like a jam band or the like, you know, jazz fusion bands where you have kind of, you know, like you said, the central melody. And then there's a place where you can kind of branch off and just see where it takes you. And then after a time, you can kind of come back to the core, you know, so there's something kind of anchoring it. it's not like floating in space. But yeah, absolutely. And I think when I read the description as like fusion, my mind immediately went to like somebody with like a PRS doing, you know, these technical guitar <laughs> histrionics. <laughs> and I was I was very pleasantly surprised that it's acoustic based because it sounds more grounded and mm-hmm. it works. I think that works really well with the percussion and the bass player is amazing and if that had been electric guitar it would have separated too much so having it as an acoustic guitar which is you know clearly harder because they're you know just just to start it's just you have to put more force into your playing based on having um you know a different amplification as you know electric guitar is just thinner strings different it's a different way of playing and um really you're controlling all aspects just with fingers and and how hard you pluck or or strum and that to me was like one of the coolest aspects was hearing the guitar player just cover so much ground um is there just one or is there two guitar players I believe there were only four of them. So I think it's just the one guitar player in this uh, setup. They've had lineup shifts over time. Okay. So I think in seven, it was just the four of them and the one guitar player. Cause in the, I found the, the inside jacket of the album that shows the lineup and two of them are holding acoustic guitars, but only, mm-hmm. only submit is credited with playing guitar. And then, yeah. so I don't, maybe that's a six string bass that he's playing in the picture. I'm not entirely yeah. sure, but yeah. And I think you said something interesting when kind of like talking about how an electric guitar would have kind of shredded everything and taken up too much space on its own. You know, um, a lot of the not like my dad, when I say my dad is into jazz fusion, he's really into jazz fusion, like almost to the exclusion of all else except jam bands. And he's into some of that really out there stuff. Like, you know, like Sonny Sherrock. Like, we know Sonny Sherrock as 90s kids, as the guy who did the music for Space Ghost Coast to Coast on the Cartoon Network. That, you know, theme. Like, a lot of his stuff sounds like that. And it's dissonant, and it's rough, and it's hard to kind of wrap your brain around. And that would have really interrupted the, the kind of overall vibe. But the guitar in this does work so beautifully. It's, so, it, it's, part, of an, it's part of a whole that kind of rises above and fades back in, but it's really part of a collective sound. And I think that's really powerful. So what works best for you on this record? I think it's the overall vibe. Like I keep, you know, I, I was looking for kind of like my killer track, like the one place I keep coming back to. And I think it just really works as a total package. I like to play this entire record top to bottom all the way through without interruption. It's great background. It's great kind of just ambient music. And I was doing a little reading and this, the show that this was recorded at was the Samat show, which is a tribute to a popular Indian leftist at the time. He's become kind of a symbol of resistance against authoritarianism. And they have this kind of standing performance that's for the freedom of Indian artists to not just perform, but perform politically. There's in, you know, in India's post-colonial history, there have been times where there have been crackdowns. There's been pretty heavy authoritarianism. You could make the argument that that's happening now. And that ethos really kind of makes sense for this record and this band to be, you know, thinking about the whole product, the collective experience, the collective sound. You know, I didn't pick up that this was a live record the first time I heard it because you can barely hear the audience, you know, you don't hear woo girls or anything in the background, you know, <laughs> it's like this holistic kind of vibe. And that's what I think works best about it is it's such a piece of art that stands on its own. 
I, I do agree with you there in terms of this does work from top to bottom. It they almost seem to flow into each other in a very logical way that perhaps the live setting helps establish that. And if these were studio tracks, it might, you know, there might be more of a break in between the tracks and it might not as, might not as flown or flowed as, as well. Um, But also I failed to mention, this is the first live album we've ever done. So you've now cracked that you've cracked open uh, quite the, (laughs) the Pandora's box with this record. (laughs) Awesome. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so happy about that. Yay. So now we're going to have to do Poison Swallow Live uh, <laughs> at some point, Jay. Didn't that come out in the 90s? <laughs> it did. I own it. <laughs> it's a double album, isn't it? It is. Unfortunately. It's like the old school double where it's like too thick. I, well, thick when case. somebody uh, that came up on Patreon that this was our first live album, it, I was shocked for a minute. But then I started thinking, I was like, you know what? I don't know that there were many great live albums in the nineties. I know there was a lot of bad ones cause I own them. So maybe, maybe it's a good thing that we've been uh, not he- he- treading heavy in the, in the live territory yet. It can be a minefield. Yeah. It seemed like the big bands avoided live albums, which is weird because that was like a lot of bands in the seventies, yeah. even into the eighties put out live albums, but like Pearl Jam didn't start doing those live albums until the two thousands when they went off the Ticketmaster uh, circuit. Yeah, selling them at Best Buy every episode for the labels too. It's a cheap product, so thought a lot of labels. Right, always feed frenzy Jimmy Buffett live. (laughs) Says the Mobilian. That's our most. He's our most famous non-sports export that we're proud of. (laughs) Are you putting "proud of" in quotation marks? Well, no, I'm separating it into like good people, like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, and like non-cringeworthy, and then like. The, the the you know, it's Alabama, you know, right between the lines. <laughs> Wait, you're saying he's not from Margaritaville? <laughs> Unless Mobile's Margaritaville. Which, <laughs> well, I actually, if I remember correctly, Feeding Frenzy is the record at which point he says, "This is the song that got me out of Mobile, Alabama." So, yay! Oh. <laughs> More of our famous people claiming us. <laughs> well, well, Jay, what doesn't work for you on this record? I tend to like. The songs that are, well, I like the bass playing. I tend to like the songs that are more, um, less oriented around the bass grooves. So, because to me, they start to get in like almost a jammy band kind of space, which I don't love. So I'm more into the stuff that's, um, like I said, more progressive, maybe starts sparse and builds. As opposed to, you know, start with a kind of a groove-oriented bass line and then kind of just the guitar works its way around that. I feel like those songs have less place to go then. They kind of just stay in that vibe. Or I'm more into the stuff where you go on a bit of a journey. There's three or four songs that are like that. So that was really like the biggest thing that stood out to me. Once I kind of got into the into the sound of the record, that was one of the things that I picked up on. I get you. Like um, the track... Is it going I, to Ito or going to ITO? Yeah. Like that has a good balance of like the bass doing something cool. The the guitar's got a cool line. And then you get like an actual like some some dynamic because it starts yeah. out with just percussion and then they get a kit going at like a minute and a half into the song. So it's like there's a build to that one. Yeah, yeah. like Bull Weevil. It starts with that bass line and it's kind of like you're right into it and then it stays mostly in that space it gets a little progressive at the end but kind of in that groove for most of that song yeah i agree with you they do tend to lock in to the when the bass starts it out and that's not nearly as interesting as when the bass is able to like roam around a little bit more yeah 
I, I like when it's like um, the bass is playing lines that are kind of bouncing around the guitar lines, like, and the two are just kind of like moving forward together as opposed to like, okay, here's the bass groove. Now go play over top of it. I, I gotta say it was a surreal experience listening to like euphoria, the track and remembering my dad trying to like, my dad is into jazz, but not like Coltrane and Ornette Coleman, but like, you know, Larry Carlton, the jazz that you would put on at like a spa that that kind of jazz you know it's it's like i wonder if i could push him to to listen to this because this isn't like it's not aggressive in terms of its of this playing which i think is probably the only like negative for me is like i'd almost like this to get a little bit more frenzied at times yeah um so i feel like this this actually would be a good gateway for my dad to be like into something a little bit different that's still jazz influenced or or yeah. in that vein but doesn't isn't like dissonant felonious monk right. you know <laughs> all, all sorts of off kilter things so that's really my only complaint about the record i mean I, I the playing is amazing um i can just listen to this forward to back but i wish there was like just one or two spots where they kind of like really got crazy with because I know they can they can clearly just rip yeah. when they want to so yeah that's for me um, Tara are there any spots on the record or anything that doesn't work for you I think I agree with you in the whole like there's a sense of a lot of sort of like restraint like you I know from other listening and listening to some of their later working these guys when they open up they open up all the way and it's really excellent like when they kind of bring it up a notch and start kind of going into some of the harder stuff, it's really excellent. But that wasn't what we were going for here. We were going for a very specific sound, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. had that vibe. And as a Steely Dan fan, I, I, I note with awkwardness that Larry Carlton reference. And yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> totally I mean, fair. Larry Carlton is an amazing guitar player, but he tends to like, you know, he's restrained. Yeah. And there's a there's a specific sound there, and it's like a specific kind of yeah, you know, kind of closed in. Like Rachel Maddow once described Steely Dan as listening to math, and I thought it was the most genius description <laughs> I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's hilarious. Yeah, and I love Steely Dan. Like, very like got the box set for my 18th birthday. Like, love Steely Dan, but like. Yeah, that's that's a very fair criticism. And I do kind of wish that there had been kind of that standout track. Like, it's not that I don't hear a single, but like, you know, it's hard to kind of take a piece and say, oh, yeah, that's a super highlight right there. It's more of, oh, here's a peak in the flow. Yes. Yeah, there's no like, there's no single in any conceivable way. And, and, you know, we, we wouldn't bring this up in terms of like, why wouldn't uh, American radio play this? Well, you know, clearly, you know, alternative rock station is not going to play this. And, and it, even though this is fusion rock, like you said at the beginning, the, the fusion is starting without the rock. It's not rock and then adding jazz. It is the complete opposite end. So there's no crossover capability in terms of, of that. Where this would be, where you would hear this is probably on, you know, now I would imagine with like satellite radio and there being like 200 channels where they do have a much more expansive catalog where they do play music from different countries and it's not just all, you know, US and UK uh, based artists. I would imagine a band like this could, could get onto a satellite station um that's playing indian music although i haven't had satellite radio in like four years so i don't know jay do you have it still do you flip around i have it we we just have it to listen to our turn (laughs) the audio quality is so bad that i don't even bother oh i know like for music how have they not figured that out yet 
Yeah, who knows? I just got it back because they were doing a free thing with, hey, you're stuck at home. Here's four free months of XM. And I was like, okay, whatever. I've had it off and on for years. And I've largely been listening to um, the at work network for 90s kids who went to college in Virginia, Dave Matthews Band Radio, because they'll just like play an entire show of his and you can kind of tune out to that, which is lovely. But I haven't really explored any of the international channels. They do have a tragically hip radio now. I know XM, XM, which is really fantastic, Hmm. but it's pretty cool. But yeah, the sound quality is a problem. It's really compressed. It's really bad. (laughs) Well, it's got to go a long way up to that satellite and then come back down. So I guess something it's (laughs) the little bits and pieces fall (laughs) off along the way. (laughs) Get this really compressed. (laughs) (laughs) Just losing zeros and ones here and there in the atmosphere. Uh, always put up, or we try to, a poll at uh, a Patreon when we have uh, reviews we're going to do. And we did get some comments. Um, Gary Moran did actually mention if this was our, ask if this was our first live album, and we said yes. Um, Patrick Testa said, I assume that studio album was one of those things called Not Really Rules Rules of DMO, but thanks to Tara for this, you can't review the best jam music by disregarding live recordings, which now makes me think think Patra is going to suggest a fish album next time. <laughs> so thank you, Tara, for opening up that can of worms. We cannot listen to 26 hours of a fish show on New Year's Day and make a podcast out of it, right? No. No. <laughs> come on. Well, I know there's there's a fish live album that did come out in the 90s, right? Like... I remember that being at the radio station because I didn't play it. Um, just ignored it like it wasn't there. I remember that. I remember not playing that. Yeah. Yeah. A live one. That was like the big. Uh, I remember that now. Yeah. That was uh, June of 95. Yep. So before we get to the voting at Patreon, let's give our. Final uh, review. Worthy album, better EP, or decent single? Jay, where do you land? This broadened my horizons, but I'm still at an EP. So I would put Euphoria going to ITO or ITO from the ruins and Melancholy Ecstasy. Melancholic Ecstasy. Sorry. I want that to be a single with Technical Ecstasy by Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> Dual A sides? D- double A sides. See how people like that. Um, I'm going to go with a worthy album just because I found it very comforting to just put this record on and have it on all the way through and just work and chill. And um, what else did I do? I drove listening to this, just drove around. Not drove around, but I was, you know, when I was doing my errands, going out with my mask and uh, picking up stuff, I listened to this. I listened to it. Uh, yeah, it was one of those. Oh, when I was building birdhouses in the garage, that was fun. Uh, I had this on, cutting wood with my uh, with my saw and and nail gunning things together. So it got a lot of play in the uh, in my last couple weeks. So yeah, it's a worthy record for me. I, there's none of the tracks that I dislike. I mean, it's only a seven song record, so but nothing nothing stood out as like I would skip the track. Tara, where do you land? I definitely land on Worthy Album because I think the whole is definitely greater than the sum of the parts here because it's really hard to, for me to piece that out. You know, there are definitely highlights and I think I kind of agree with the EP flow that those were the highlight portions, but I would have trouble separating off kind of the rest, the, the rest of the tracks because I feel like they work better when they join those songs together. So you're not just jumping from experience to experience. You're kind of going through the whole thing. So I think it's worthy just because I can't separate it into pieces. Well, and we have uh, concurring uh, votes at Patreon. 100% worthy album. It was two votes. Yay. Did you vote? <laughs> no, I did not. I, I explicitly stayed away from the discourse. There I you go. Influence. Well, you know, it's sometimes it's nice from the person who suggests the record just chimes in and says some provides some obscure fact about it <laughs> just for fun. Just like, hey, this was 
blah blah blah. This I I got this record at you know Music Town in 1993, and no, no, no. that'll bias people because then they'll be like, oh, the person who picked this is looking, so I'm not going to be honest. Oh, that there you go. You think there's that yeah, level of of like, concern? Well, I know I've definitely had people, not like on purpose, but you know, in different in other polls or whatever, and other other shows. I've learned things about the music that changed my mind as I've been reading through things like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. And it definitely swayed me. So I didn't want to, you know, I wanted everybody to come to it organically without like hearing a thing that might change their perception. I do want to say it was an odd week for me because I was predominantly listening to this record and the new hum album. And those are wildly different. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed today my recommendations from Apple Music are just bonkers. Like, it doesn't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been rocking this and Run the Jewels 4. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that is well. And I just introduced my wife to that. Uh, she had never listened to Run the Jewels. And I was like, oh, she heard um, they talked about it on Sound Opinions. And she was like, have you? She, this is what she says to me. I was listening to Sound Opinions, and I they were talking about this. Um, hip hop group or rap group um, that has a new album out. I go run the jewels. Like I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. I didn't even need to know anymore. I was like, it's run the jewels. If they're talking about on sound opinions, that's the only group yep. they're going to be talking about. And yep. I played her a bunch of songs, and she was like, "Oh my god, how have I not heard this before?" I said, "Well, you're a K through five music teacher. You're not going to be jamming this in this classroom." <laughs> yeah, the kids' bop version of that record's probably not coming anytime soon. Well, I also played her the meow the Jew- jewels record. <laughs> Which is so Jay Run the Jewels is a hip hop duo, uh, Killer Mike and LP. LP was in the band Company Flow in the nineties. And they took an they had a one of their albums, they took all the samples out and all of the music and they replaced it with cat meows. It's amazing. But they kept their vocals in. Right. It was literally like LP got high and was like, We should do a cat thing and then they did it and turn the proceeds over to charity. It was hilarious. I was going to be you know, this coming August was going to be the rage against the machine, run the jewels tour at Madison square garden. So oh. now I have to wait till August 2021 for that. And I am very eagerly anticipating it. Cause it was going to be amazing. Yeah. That, uh, that sucks. I'm sorry <laughs> to wait for rage against the machine to get back together. And then this happens. And I was going to go to I was going to see them for the first time at the 2000 Tibetan Freedom concert in D.C., but I could not because one of the Beastie Boys broke their collarbone. And then the 2000 VMAs happened, which was just rerun on Friday night, where uh, Tim, the bass player, climbed up the set and they had that whole big thing. And apparently that was the thing that broke up Rage Against the Machine. That was the last straw is that Zach and, uh, Zach and Tom Morello told him not to do it, and he did it anyway, and they like walked out and had a big blow-up, and that was it. Wow, I didn't know that that's the reason that they broke up. I thought that mm. Zach didn't want to... I mean, it seemed like he didn't want to play with those guys because they went on to do Audio Slave. Well, apparently, it, and I, I was just talking to one of my friends about this on Friday night because the show was on, so it was really weirdly fresh in my mind, but... Apparently this was kind of, you know, they'd had tensions and they'd been building and building and building and just, and they performed on the show. They, they did uh, testify. And then like an hour later when Limp Biscuit won best rock song, which, okay, whatever it was 2000, that was going to happen. <laughs> just decided to cause a scene. Like he spent the night in jail along with his bodyguard and it was a big giant blow up. And that was that wild, wild times. Mm-hmm. I blame Fred Durst because it's appropriate. That's a f- that's it's fair. That's not a bad idea. No. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Fred. I'm sure you're a wonderful guy now. Mm, I think this whole red hat thing is his fault. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, too. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Tara, thank you once again for coming back and introducing us to such uh, an interesting record that is going to have repercussions in multiple ways. This is this is like a butterfly effect album. Like it's going to change the future in ways that we don't even know right now. I have no idea how I'm going to top myself next summer. You're, you're just going to have to pick something like really bland 
Like, guys, <laughs> we're going to do lives throwing copper. <laughs> you just have to. I would have plenty of high school stories for you on that one. Oh, there you go. Oh. Okay. Steely Dan doesn't have any uh, 90s material? No, no, they totally missed the 90s. Actually, you know what? I take that back. I think there was a live record released in the 90s because they stopped recording Uh-oh. in 1980. And then Two Against Nature came out in 2000. Is there any Donald so, Fagan solo material in the 90s that we can uh, get into? Let me. I, I'm now going to go to the Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go to the Google. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up here and say uh, you can suggest an album over at digmeoutpodcast.com. You go to suggest an album. Drop it in there. Leave us a comment. We'll put it in our monthly poll. And then that will get voted on by our patrons, which you can join us and be one of those voters at patreon.com. Go there by going to digmeoutunion.com or dig me or dmounion.com. You get to vote on the polls. You get to the you get the 80s episodes. You get all the bonus material. Join our Discord channel. Access to all kinds of uh, fun stuff, stickers, and depending on the, on, the, on your tiers. And then also you can sign up for our box newsletter at digmeoutpodcast.com. Uh, delivered to you every weekend. New releases, movies, music, books. Uh, lots of stuff coming out every week. Sometimes just drops out of nowhere. Not, not even aware of it. And oh, yeah, Apple Podcasts. That's where you go to leave some positive feedback. What'd you find? Did Donald Fagan have a, a 90s album? He did. 1993's Comic Uriad. Oh, I know. That that had a video on VH1. Yep. I remember that. What was the name of that song? Um, There was Tomorrow's Girls and Snowbound. Snowbound. That's it. I was rocking that. I might have even had a kiss single. (laughs) Nice. I remember the video. It's got like animated snow things going on. Because it's called Mm -hmm. Snowbound. (laughs) (laughs) all right time to wrap up once again thanks tara for coming back stay cool likewise for jay i'm tim we're out we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out